Thank you for listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. We hope you enjoy our journey through the book of Acts, exploring the many powerful actions of Jesus Christ as he continues to move and teach us through his apostles by his Holy Spirit, empowering the explosion of the church to expand from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, which is you and me right here and right now, where we move from spectators to participants and join with Paul in preaching the gospel with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's now join Pastor Jordan Moody in our new series, Acts, The Movement Begins. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. We're going to continue on our um, series here in Acts, and uh, this is our series that we just began a few weeks ago. It still feels like we're beginning. We're just uh, jumping into uh, chapter three now. Uh, There are, well... 28 chapters in Acts, and some of you are like, oh boy. All right, now, well, today I'm, I'm looking at, you know, accomplishing a decent amount of material here this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at really the big picture in, in Acts 3 today. I'm very excited about that, and uh, I think it's going to be impactful for you. I've been studying this passage this week, and it's just been something that's been going over my head over and over, and it's been really ministering to my heart, and I, I hope it will for you today. Uh, Acts 3. As you'll see, if you can even, if you have a Bible in front of you, you can see, you can see this whole chapter and the storyline that's going on. Um, I'm going to read just a few verses and then I'll stop. We are going to be looking at the entirety of the chapter just as a big picture. Really going to spend bulk of our time towards the end there in verse 19 and 20. But let me just begin. It gives us the sense of this miracle and then Peter preaches a sermon in line with that miracle. And then there's persecution that results of it. In fact, they're thrown in prison. We'll be looking at that more next week. But Acts 3, verse 1, let me just begin by this, and I'll pray, and then we'll be looking at the rest of it as we go. But Acts 3, verse 1 says, And Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And the man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple. That is called the beautiful gate. To ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and jumping up and down and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate, the gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Let's open in prayer. Father, we come before you. We thank you for these words. We thank you for your truth. God, we thank you, Lord, that you speak to every heart here in this place. May you encourage us. God, may you be strong today. May your name be lifted high as we've sung already. All hail the name of King Jesus. We, you're the King of kings, Lord of lords. Father, you... You're good. You're good to us and we praise you, God, for that. May your power come upon us today. 
in a way where we see the reality of who you are, the reality of your spirit, and we recognize, God, that you have broken the curse of sin and you have poured out your spirit upon us and you've given new life. And I pray for that today in Jesus' name. Amen. Not sure if you are a big sports fan or not, but maybe you're familiar with this because it was so uh, famous for so many years. Uh, but maybe you've, you've heard of the curse of the Bambino. You've heard of that? The curse of the Bambino. Now, we're speaking to a New England crowd here, so this is, a very, uh, this is very fitting. The curse of the Bambino was a superstitious sports curse in Major League Baseball derived from an 86-year championship drought of the Boston Red Sox. Don't we remember those days, right? Between 1918 and then eventually 2004, the superstition was named after Babe Ruth, colloquially known as the Bambino, which I just realized for the first time was Italian for baby, babe. I never connected that until today. Uh, anyways, who played uh, for the Red Sox until he was sold to the New York Yankees in 1920? While some fans took the curse very seriously, most used the expression in a tongue-in-cheek manner, the Red Sox are cursed, right? And so prior to the drought, the Red Sox had been one of the most successful professional baseball franchises. They won five of the first 15 World Series titles, including the first in 1903. More than that, any other major league baseball team at that time. Ruth was a major co contributor during that three championship run until the, the, the sale of Babe Ruth. The once lackluster Yankees became one of the most dominant professional sports fr franchises in North America, winning more than twice as many World Series titles than any other team. And the curse became the focal point between the Yankees-Red Sox rivalry, which many of us remember uh, for many years. And so talk of the curse was an ongoing phenomenon, ending that every year, maybe the Red Sox can break the curse, reverse the curse. The Red Sox championship uh, came about. Uh, there was a 3-0 uh, deficit against the Yankees in 2004 league championship, where eventually that came to be. Uh, but the curse was also something that was around, just culture during that time. There was signs in Boston on the Longfellow Bridge, reverse the curse sign, that eventually when they broke the curse in 04, they changed it to reversed curse in the celebration during that time. But the first articulation, historians look back at it, who came up with this idea of this curse and how did they connect it to Babe Ruth and where did this originally come from? Who was the first to write about this idea? Uh, Shaughnessy had written a book about this topic later on, kind of trying to historically uh, detail a lot of these stories. And one of the stories goes back to a letter that Reverend Daryl Berger of the First Parish Church in Situate, Massachusetts wrote. And as an avid fan of, Re of the Red Sox, he was. He was also an occasional baseball writer and broadcaster whose congregation dates all the way back to Puritan times. And uh, he placed his position trying to articulate the frustration that everyone felt with the Red Sox. And he used uh, very spiritual terms to describe it. And so I'll read that for you here in a minute. It's where this kind of curse comes from. Reverend Berger writes, In both cases you have a cursed family because of evil and had, that had been done. And it's passed down several generations later. I think the selling of Ruth as the sin that cannot be atoned for. <laughs> there hasn't been a savior that has come along and made that atonement. The socks, over and over, he writes, again, keep paying for that sin. Phrasey sins against the Sox fans by selling Babe Ruth. This severs trust between the fans and ownership that shall never be healed. 
A curse is also merely a folk-wise way of explaining the unexplainable, he writes. But who wants to leave it at that? Because it could be so much more, right? And then, you know, many of you know the story uh, of the, the famous, it's even difficult saying his name, uh, Bill Buckner, uh, the famous event where he let the ball go between his legs. And yet I've been told by historians and baseball friends that, that Bill Buckner in, in many ways was going to be the MVP of that series. But all he's remembered for is the error that lost the game. And then 2003, the Yankees were, play, uh, were playing the Red Sox. And uh, Boston held a 5-2 lead in the eighth inning, right? Do you remember this? Grady Little opted to keep pitcher Pedro Martinez in, and the famous Aaron Boone hits that home run and crushed everyone's spirit. I, I still remember staying up late with my parents and then trying to crawl into school the next day as everyone's exhausted because everybody in all of New England stayed up watching these games to imagine. And yes, another year went by. The curse is further solidified. We are a cursed franchise. And then finally... The end of the curse in 2004. The Red Sox once again met the Yankees in the American League Championship Series. The Red Sox lost the first three games. They're down 0-3 to the dreaded Yankees. Although I know a few of you I'm friends with and some of you are Yankees fans in here. So please just let us have our few moments here. And it works well with the sermon illustration, so be gracious. The Red Sox lost the first three games. They're down 0-3. And the last game, we lost 19-8. Crushed. We got crushed. Then the Red Sox trailed 4-3 in the bottom of the ninth inning in game four. But the team tied the game with a walk by Kevin Millar and a stolen base by the famous... Dave Roberts, some of you, I just already heard it. You, you know these things, you know these. And, and, and then was followed by an RBI single against Yankee closer Mariano Rivera um, by the third baseman Bill Miller, and they won on a two-home home run in the 12th inning by David Ortiz, right? And some of you are like, who are these people? You have no idea. Just bear with me. The Red Sox won the next three games to become the first team and the only Major League Baseball team to win a seven-game postseason series after losing the first three games. Had never happened, somebody down 0-3 to come back, right? And then it was all history because they made it to the World Series and they beat the St. Louis Cardinals in four games to none. They swept them. And the curse was reversed, right? See, the, the whole sermon is already right there. It's right there for you, okay? It's the gospel in the Red Sox, maybe. I don't know. I'm already treading on very shaky ground here. But I'm hoping it will stick with you, right? This reversing of the curse. This whole concept that when we now shift from the silliness of sports, and I recognize they're a silly thing, but yet when we then shift to the reality of the life that we face now, the reality that we recognize as we have saying King Jesus has broken the curse of sin and has come into our lives to give us new life. Yet we still recognize that as we look around, as many of you, as talking with somebody earlier, just saying how difficult it is to even just look at the news right now and see all of the bloodshed, especially as we pray each and every day for Israel and all that is going on around this, uh, across the globe. To see just absolute brutality and violence, the terrorism, people hurting one another, this, this broad brush of, of just seeing the evil out in the world, then also experiencing evil in our own lives as we potentially in our own families, in our own friends, in our own workplaces experience wrongs done to us. As we experience the effects of sin upon our lives, as we recognize relationships that once were close now seem to be broken and distant, and how could we ever be reconciled again? 
How could we ever experience grace and mercy? How, as we know, we, well, look at me, I've blown it again, we might think to ourselves. And there's this Genesis 3 that still echoes all through life. We long to be set free. We long to be like this crippled man at the beautiful gate, longing to have his ability to walk and to be set free. We long to have that healing come upon us. And so when we read in the word of God, the word of God is inspired, it is alive. And yet I think there is a, a main emphasis of the word of God, at least for me as I begin to think about it over time, is the word of God becomes something that allows us to have a framework in our minds to be able to see the world in a new light. That, that it gives us actual hope based on what we learn and we know to be true through faith. We, we begin to experience and see the things that are going on and the very things that we're experiencing in our own lives and we begin to have a framework of the scripture that tells us there's still hope and there is a savior. And the word of God in a variety of situations gives us a vision for something beyond and something glorious, something wonderful and beautiful that we are aiming to look to and to see and have faith that Jesus will lead us to that place, a place of new heavens and new earth. And we begin to see that in Isaiah 35. You could turn with me if you have it there. I'm gonna look at a few verses. This is by way of introduction. It'll all make sense here shortly. But Isaiah 35 paints for us this glorious landscape of a beautiful picture of serenity and beauty and, and glorious lush landscape of a jungle, almost in a sense, this forest vividly filled with, with lush flowers and plants and vegetation and that has come from a desert. And it, and it is depicting, many ways, our own lives before Christ and the world that we see around us right now that, that is longing to be healed by the power of Jesus that needs all things to be restored one day. And it's by seeing these things and capturing a new vision for what God is doing with our lives and with the world as a whole that we have a hope to press on in our present circumstance. Does that seem to make sense? So let's look at Isaiah 35, and I want you to just capture the vision that's being presented to you. I want you to capture the, 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 the pictures and what he's describing to you. Isaiah 35 says this, the wilderness and the dry land, the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus flower, the spring flower. Verse two, it shall blossom abundantly. It'll rejoice with joy and singing. Skip down to verse three. It says, strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. And verse five and six are particularly poignant for our passage this morning in Acts 3. You'll pick up on it. Verse five says, the eyes of the blind shall be open, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Verse six, then the lame man shall leap like a deer, Acts three, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. <laughs> the waters are gonna break forth into this wilderness, this dry land. There's gonna be actual streams in the desert. Verse seven, the burning sand 
You can almost imagine the Saudi Arabian kind of rolling sand. This burning sand will become like a pool of water. The thirsty ground springs of water in the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. Then this rough place will be made, verse 8, like a highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean aren't going to pass over it. Verse 9 says no lion shall be there. It'll be peaceful. The redeemed shall walk there. Then verse 10 kind of summarizes it all for us. Verse 10 gives us this vision for the future. And it says the ransom to the Lord shall return and come to Zion or Jerusalem with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And then look at this. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. It's like the vision that we receive in Revelation for the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth, that in that place and in that space there will be no more crying, there will be no more pain and sorrow. The Lord will be our light. This is a vision for the curse being reversed. Not just in a sense of being eliminated, but being reversed in the sense that blessing is poured upon what was previously dead. Life comes from the wilderness and from the desert Genesis 3, sin breaks and defeats, yet the return to Eden that we're all longing for is going to take place one day. The ransom, those of us who've been bought and purchased back, will return. We will be brought together. This is speaking of both a physical and a spiritual restoration, a real restoration of both physical earth, our physical bodies, and our spiritual souls uniting together in the way that they were once made and meant to be and operate in, which we recognize is not the way things are now. This is not the way it was intended to be. There is something deathly wrong with us. Sin in this world exists, and it causes so much pain. Yet what if we believe in Isaiah 3 and in the New Testament when we encounter the scripture? What if we're made to believe that, that this has already begun, that this dream, this vision for the future has already begun? You could say the ball is already rolling. The, God has already set into motion the processes to make this more than just a vision or a dream that we might have or a wish dream that some might think, but rather there is an inauguration of a kingdom. The king has been crowned. The kingdom is spreading, and he is returning to bring into fullness and into completion all things one day. What if the ball's already rolling, the events are already set into motion, if Jesus has already come? What if I have faith that Jesus really did die, and that Jesus really did rise from the dead? And if he ascended to heaven and sits in authority, and one day he will bring the day of the Lord, and he will return to bring about the renewal of all things, not just my heart, but all things as well, the restoration of everything. Second Peter 3 reminds us this. Peter, not only in Acts 3, is the one who takes the lame man and raises him up, but this sense here in 2 Peter 3, when he writes in his letter, he says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It'll come fast and unexpected. The heavens are going to pass away, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Imagine a land and a place and a kingdom where no wrong is done, but righteousness prevails, rules, and reigns. What is right, what is good, what is lovely and of good report, what is peaceful and full of shalom, that is the land in which that reigns, a place where righteousness dwells. It's new heaven, a new earth. And today we get a, in Acts 3, we get a foretaste of that. 
We get a, a vision of what is to come in its fullness, and yet we, what we experience each and every day here in its sense that really here we look at Acts 3 and there's a miracle of healing of a lame man. This is a miraculous testimony of the living power of Jesus Christ continuing to work through his spirit of, in the apostles. Jesus died and he rose again and he ascended to the heavens. And now in Acts 3, we see a verification of that same power that is now living within the church and verifying the power of Jesus that is still alive right now through the power of Peter and John right there in the power of the Spirit. So it's almost a close-up view as you zoom in on this story of the lame man. But when you zoom out, the bigger, broader viewpoint is that the miracle is, is a greater message that extends to all of us here today. This greater message of that salvation is found in the name of Jesus. And his presence brings about refreshing despite the present trials you might face. For faith in the name of Jesus, his wonder-working power guarantees you a return to the Eden. An authority to make all things right again. To restore all things in the way that he has promised to do. To reverse the curse of sin once and for all, and to bring together what has already been broken apart. This is what God is doing. This is what he has done, and this is what he will promise to continue to do until he returns. And so we look at Acts 3, and we are blown away by this story. Not just a story or a fairy tale, but a reality, a historical event, a real person who walked, who was filled with the Spirit, who we see here experience this miraculous power and praise God for it. And so we see this miraculous sign in the name of Jesus that we witness here in the verse 10 verses. This takes place at the beautiful gate. Uh, it, and then there's a sermon that Peter preaches right after that, what we'll read here in a moment, where we read about Peter preaching a sermon in respect to this in Solomon's portico. This is all taking place in the temple at that time. And the beautiful gate is a temp, uh, an entrance right into the temple gates. It kind of goes right in there. In fact, it's, some people would say it's the eastern gate. When you visit Jerusalem, you, the eastern gate, the beautiful gate, the golden gate, they're often different names for often very the same area. And as he's sitting there at the beautiful gate, it's said that he's had to be carried, he's being carried there each and every day to beg. And later on, we find in Acts 4 that this man is 40 years old and has been born crippled. So his entire life, he's been begging for money. He's been begging for alms, for help. And an extraordinary moment happens when Peter and John go into the temple. He asks to receive alms just like he would have every, any other day. There's really nothing particularly special about this day, except for the fact that Peter and John walked next to him during that day. And it says that they directed their gaze at each other. This is this kind of Peter looking at him. There's this specific sense of Peter almost having compassion as he stares upon this man. I often wonder sometimes, and I'm not sure where I heard this, but I often wonder if that man, if Jesus had also walked by that man before, for he sat at that same location that Jesus no doubt would have gone in and out many different times. But for God's glory and for his work to be performed in him, this is the moment that we are reminded of today. For Luke chooses to share this miracle. Certainly there were many others. But he shares with us this one. And in this manner, Peter looks at him, gazes at him, and has pity on him. And he says to the band, look at us. Look at us. Look up. And it's fascinating because the man, 
doesn't seem to exemplify any kind of faith or any reason to be healed or, or deserving any of this. In fact, he's actually expecting to receive alms from Peter and John, just like other people do. Before they go into worship at the temple, they would help out the poor and respond in obedience to what God's asked them to do, to take care of the poor. So he's expecting to receive something, it says. Look at um, verse five, and he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. And yet, what do they tell him? We don't have any money. (laughs) Silver and gold, have I none, as many would say. And yet, what they have is so much better than that. What they have is above and beyond what was expected. (laughs) They give him, in the name of Jesus, he says, I don't have any money, but in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. Go and walk, and and in this extraordinary miracle, the way it's described, it's as if those skinny, almost boned legs with just um, skin wrapped around bones, almost no muscular working. They, They didn't work, he was crippled and unable to walk. And it's almost as if in an instant, it says in the scripture, immediately, Immediately, he is in such a way where there is muscle, muscles and, and all kinds of, of, of strength just immediately into his legs. <laughs> it would have been fascinating to almost see his legs and then one instant later, there's muscles and his legs were like brand new, completely regenerated with strength, vitality, and firmness. Immediately, his bones were sufficient to hold his body, but not just to wobble and walk but to immediately have the muscle recognition in the mind that would work with it to be able to know how to walk. For many of you have taught a toddler how to walk. Their, their legs might work, but they don't know how. This is a way now all of a sudden his entire body was working in shalom and peace and wholeness. And now not only could he walk, but what did he do? He jumped. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? He, uh, the way it's described is he leaped up. Like we read in Isaiah 35, the man, the lame man will leap like a deer, jump around. And, and this is the strengthening of the weak uh, hands and, the, and the, the strength to the, the weak knees and, the, and, and this power that's immediately there's strength and now they're jumping around. I remember yesterday I was at a birthday party with a friend and their daughter was so excited. Everybody, all the kids are coming into the birthday and she's just jumping around like this. Like she didn't stop for like 10 minutes and just kept jumping and jumping and jumping. And you know what it's like to see a little toddler so excited. They can't stop jumping, right? This is this guy. He's never walked in his life. He's so excited that, that he's just jumping around, leaping, praising God. Incredible. What a beautiful picture. And yet in this picture, there's so many parallels. Why does Luke share this story? What is going on in this miracle? There's many things. In fact, we see parallels to the work of Jesus. For Jesus heals blind Bartimaeus who sits there. In Mark 10 and Luke 18, he goes up and, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus gives his sight to him and gives sight to this blind man. John 9 describes the rabbi, who, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind like this, right? Jesus says neither. But the fact that he has this is so that the work of God would be performed in him and be displayed, that this would be a sign of the light of the world that has come <clears throat> not only in this man's eyesight, but to the world to provide salvation and restoration You see, miracles point to a greater restoration still yet to come in their fullness. 
the beauty and the power and the miraculous uh, work and the sign and wonder as it was caused amazement as it should. But there's even a greater picture that is meant to be seen, that the one who works in this small way, in this one man, can also work in the entire world for anyone who would call upon his name. And so it is a foretaste of a new heaven and a new earth, the way things are meant to be. This miracle is a testimony to God's intention to restore what is broken, a miracle that he has power to reverse the curse for this man and for all and for eternity. Miracles, signs, wonders remind us of God's power to regenerate muscles and sinews and cartilage and strengthen our brittle bones. Yes, he can. To raise up dry bones, as he speaks about in Ezekiel, dry bones from a valley to breathe life into them and muscles to be uh, wrapped around those bones and to create an army out of nothing. This death that happens, yet he can bring from ashes beauty. If God can do that in a lame man, he has the power to make alive those who are dead in our trespasses and sins. He certainly will promise to make me alive together with him, to raise my dry bones in the valley and give me new life and breath in my lungs. As we read and say often at times, Ephesians 3, as it says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than anything that we can ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The lame man received far more than silver or gold. He received the ability to walk and jump far more than that. And we receive far more than just a positive outlook in our situation or an increased comfort and temporary healing in life. We receive far more than that for Jesus comes and conquers death and gives us more and beyond anything we could ever ask or think or even imagine. Eternal life and salvation through faith and grace for sinners like you and me. We receive what was above and beyond and far more abundantly. I don't have any money to make this happen, maybe, but what I do have is the power of the name of Jesus Christ. And in the name of Jesus, we see a wonderful power be worked out from that. For only in the name of Jesus is salvation made possible. There is no other name among heaven, uh, under heaven given among, on earth and given among men whereby we must be saved. I've been listening to a song by Ben Lane. He's a local artist here in New Hampshire and all this area, and... Um, his new song is called Names. It's kind of a remake of one of his older songs, but it's been a song that just details and highlights for you to sing the different names of God. And he says in the, in the song, we sing Adonai, which is Lord, and El Shaddai, God Almighty. El Shaddai is really God Almighty, El being God. And he says, we sing Jehovah Rapha, Elohim, King of Kings. We sing Jesus Christ, Son of God, Holy Messiah. We sing Lamb of God, Deliverer, Risen Savior, Hallelujah, Lion of Judah coming again. This word, El Shaddai, God Almighty, we sing Jehovah Rapha, that is God is your healer. The Lord is your healer. That's a quotation from Exodus 15. If you remember in the wilderness, they're wandering in their thirst, they're, they're, they're so thirsty for water. And the Lord leads them to this bitter stream of water called Mara, for it is bitter. Moses throws a log, I believe it is, in there and the water changes from bitter to sweet. This parched, disgusting salt and iron muddy water turns into this spring, this mountain spring water, cool and refreshing. We trust in the Lord and it says to the people of Israel there in Exodus 15, you trust in the Lord, follow my ways and I will be your healer. The Lord 
is your healer. And that's ultimately what we read in this kind of sermon that Peter preaches. Let me just read here to the end, right even dipping into chapter four, and then we're gonna focus on really one main part and we'll be done here. Look at uh, Acts three, verse 11. And I may stop here and there to mention a few things, but uh, Acts three, verse 11 says, and while he clung to Peter and John, the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. So get the picture. The guy's jumping around, leaping and praising God, and now he's literally holding on to Peter, clinging to him, and will not let go while Peter is preaching a sermon to over 5,000 people in the portico. That's fascinating. Verse 12, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. Is it my power, Peter? Is it my power, John? No. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob and the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. Verse 14, but you denied the holy and righteous one. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. Remember, Peter just goes right after it. To this we are witnesses. Verse 16, and his name by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man perfect health in the presence of you all. So he uses this man who's literally clinging to him right now and says, look at this man. Do you think, who did this? Me? No. God did this through the power of Jesus. Verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Verse 19, repent therefore and turn back. This is our key verse. That your sins may be blotted out. Verse 20, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Then skip over to verse chapter four, verse one. And it says, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. And verse two, look at this, greatly annoyed. You ever seen that before? Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Verse three, and they arrested them, Peter and John, put them in custody before the next day for it was already evening. So they threw them in jail. And look at verse four. But... Many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men in that area came to about 5,000. What an incredible message. What was Peter's sermon? What was the crux of Peter's message? Well, ultimately, our final point for the day, this major point, is that repentance leads to forgiveness and brings refreshing and restoration, which is another way of saying salvation. And you look at these points that he points out to them and he really drives the whole message to leading to verse 19, 20, and 21 where he brings it to this conclusion and this call for action. You people who have sinned greatly against God by killing the author of life, Jesus has has risen from the grave. But for those of you, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come. 
this spectacle that we see, this healing, this temporary physical healing that we experience in this man for salvation from temporary sickness or temporary lameness can only last for so long. This man one day would die again, this lame man. But rather, what he points everyone to is not just alone the power to physically heal, but also beyond that, more than silver and gold, that spiritual healing, healing and salvation from sin is forever for it is eternal life over death and separation from God. It's eternal life over all of those things. Spiritual salvation by having your sins blotted out is an eternal healing of your soul that money cannot buy, that is impossible to care, compare to any monetary amount. Silver and gold will only last you so long. Alms for the poor is good and blessed. Yes, physical healing is wonderful and miraculous and God still works in that way. But it only provides temporary relief if that's all that we receive. Money in a jar sounds good one day for your needs, but bills will still yet come. But what if all of that has been canceled and paid for? And what if your spiritual salvation can be had through Jesus Christ? Peter and John, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have is so much better than that. Rise up and walk. Peter and John say the same thing for us today. It speaks to us today. What God offers us is this priceless gift, the gift of eternal life. And what I offer to you is peace and rest from all your anxiety and struggles because in the presence of God there is fullness of joy and it leads us to a time of refreshing. Extraordinary phrase, not found very often in other places in the scripture. Verse 19 and 20, you read about times of refreshing in verse 19. That word refreshing. It probably warrants a whole sermon unto itself, but refreshing is a Greek word that carries with it the, the, the idea of renewal, restoration, which he also uses in the next verse. Like the crippled man's legs who receive a regeneration, a restoration out of nothing, now we have this new and lively jumping man who is now able to walk and jump and praise God. There's this renewal, a fresh refreshment. And here this refreshment comes through this sense of repentance from sin and turning to God to receive forgiveness and there will be a blotting out of your sin and a time or a season of refreshment will come into your life. James Montgomery Boyce says, forgiveness is what people need and the only place anyone will ever receive or find forgiveness is truly in Christ. And he gives a story that I won't share, but he says a director of a large mental institution in England said in John Stott many years ago, I could send half my patients home tomorrow if they could just find forgiveness. Forgiveness enables a freedom from a burden that we've been carrying. Maybe that burden's been placed on us by someone else. Perhaps that burden is something we have put on our own lives. But there is a refreshing that is capable, that is able to happen, almost like the story of Pilgrim's Progress, of casting off that burden and throwing it at the cross, a time when you can finally breathe again and take a breath. You ever felt that when you're out of breath? You almost, you can't get enough breath. It's like you're, you, you've been hit in the stomach. I can still remember in sports when you get the wind knocked out of you and you're just, uh, you can't breathe. And then you breathe in and you can finally breathe. There's this refreshing feeling that happens because of it. We're straining to climb the mountain and we are tired. Our muscles are screaming out in pain. And then we stop and we breathe in. And that oxygen flows into our body. And it's this time of refreshing. It is refreshing. We're drowning in the water, gasping for air. We finally reach the surface and we breathe in the air of life. 
This is the picture we're meant to have. That through that repentance from sin and receiving forgiveness from God, we receive refreshment. We receive the breath of life. It is the waters breaking forth into the wilderness. It is the streams in the desert. It is the burning sand becoming a pool. Perhaps that's you today. Your heart feels like that. The scripture reminds us our stone cold hearts can be made fresh, beating, living, and new. You long for that refreshment personally, potentially. You long for that refreshment, yes, vertically from God, but also longing to have that refreshment and that period of forgiveness with one another horizontally in your own life. You desire to restore what is currently dry. Our horizontal forgiveness with one another often is enabled by our recognition that our vertical forgiveness is possible and only done through Jesus Christ and through the grace and the mercy that he gives. Let me now seek to give that grace and mercy to others around me. And we operate in that reality, turning towards God, receiving forgiveness, blotting out wrongs done to us or by us. God takes that away and he restores a relationship between you and God as we spoke about with my Sunday school class today, a reconciliation that we have been reconciled to God once again. And this feeling that God has not canceled us and cast us aside. This is a common pervasive theme in today's modern culture. Cancel culture speaks to you. You have made an error and done wrong. I cancel you and blot your existence out. Rather, God says, you are not canceled, but I love you. I have canceled your debt. I have canceled your sin so that you can receive forgiveness, be reconciled to me, adopted into my family, receive salvation and life. He cancels it. He forgives. He moves to restore by sending Jesus to die on the cross and take our place to restore not only just our lives but the whole world one day. Colossians 2.14 says, by canceling the debt, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he, he set that aside and he nailed it to the cross and there it will be forever. Acts 3.21 Jesus Christ, whom heaven must receive until one day the time of restoring all things about which God spoke. This is the end of the story, which is the best part of the story. This restoring of all things. He has ascended, but he is coming again. And one day he will return and he will restore all things again. As Peter reminded us at the beginning of this, a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. That's the dream that's already set in motion in your heart right now. That's already set in motion as the spirit of God is transforming you even now, bringing us back to Eden one day, planting in our soul the life and the power of the Holy Spirit to preach this message of the gospel of forgiveness and salvation for anyone who would call on the name of Jesus. This is why we're all here this morning, to have our sins blotted out like a whiteboard erased, wiped clean, have our sins washed whiter than snow. The curse of the Bambino is broken and gone. And the curse of sin has been reversed. We begin to see signs of this all the time. We see signs in our own lives. Isaiah 35 reminds us of a great vision for the future, a vision for a wilderness that will become lush again. 
weakness and feeble, brittle bones will be made young and new and fresh again. A vision for unfolding this transformation in our lives. And so it is today that when we step into repentance and we turn back from our sin and we walk into this moment of seeing what God has given to us through his grace and through his mercy, we step into a new life. As Corinthians reminds us, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Are you living in that reality today? Or are you living in the old man of the, of the condemnation for Romans says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you living in a time of refreshment? Or are you living in a time of condemnation? Your sins are blotted out. They are removed as far as the east is from the west. Walk in that grace. We're called to call upon the name of Jesus and you will be saved. There will be healing, restoration, new life given to us for he gives more grace. And so I call out to you today through a simple presentation of Acts chapter three of what God can do then, he can do now within you right now. Yes, we put up barriers, we put up walls, we don't want to repent, we don't want to turn to him, we want our own way. But he gives grace and it is that the love of Christ controls us that Jesus came and died. It is his love that's been poured out into us. And Acts 4 reminds us, as Peter will continue to share his testimony later on in Acts 4, as he shares to everyone, even though he was just imprisoned, he says, remember, you can't tell us to stop preaching this message for we can never stop speaking about Jesus. Because in Acts 4.12 it says, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other name but the name of Jesus. For at that name, every knee will bow. Heaven on earth, one day, every knee will, tongue will confess. And I pray now is that time for you to remind yourself of who you are in Christ or maybe for potentially for some here today for the very first time to recognize the fact that Jesus loves you, that he has sent his son Jesus to save you and that you can be reconciled to God And that will bring a time of refreshing between you and God, but also pour out that refreshment and that breath of fresh air to everyone else around you horizontally. That is the source by which we find reconciliation, redemption, salvation, and new life even today. So let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for these words and your message and your truth. May you be glorified in all these things. Thank you, Lord, for your words your word that we find and we read today. God, help it to speak to us as it is the living word. Speak your life into our hearts through these truths today. Thank you for these people. Thank you for these believers, Lord, these people who are are seeking to be restored, seeking, Lord, you out in every aspect of their life. Thank you for these children, these people who are being instructed, Lord, everyone gathered in your name today. God, we call out to you today and we praise your name for everything that you are. In Jesus' name.